Welcome to a podcast about Hilton Head Island and the Low Country. I'm your host, Jay McCain. Today's episode is part three of a series with island legend Greg Russell. We'll talk about the state of Ohio, sandwiches, and whether or not he has actually ever owned a minivan as we travel down 278 to Lighthouse Road. Greg, thanks for joining me. Glad to be here. Thanks. All right, Greg, let's talk about one of your favorite things in the world, the state of Ohio. What's the state of Ohio mean to you? Everything. I have a career because of Ohio. You know, I started joking about it early on, and I I don't know. I have heard stories of why Ohio became a hotbed of uh, visitors coming to Hilton Head. But I understand early on there was a fairly heavy uh, marketing PR push in that area, in the Ohio general area, um, to get people to come here early on. And it must be something about the distance that, you know, makes it doable. But on any given night in Harbortown, at least in the summertime, you walk through and, and, and look at all the vehicles that are parked. And by golly, so many of them are from Ohio. And of course, they've progress now from minivans up to big suburbans and you know got kayaks on top and bikes in the back and you know dvds watching in the third seat but uh god bless them i love ohio (laughs) have you ever been there funny story uh my freshman year in high school my dad got transferred to cincinnati So I lived in Cincinnati, Ohio, my freshman year of high school, only for one year. And then I went away to uh, boarding school after that. So I I spent one year, but I fell in love with the big red machine, Pete Rose and Johnny Bench and Joe Morgan and all of those guys. So I've been a lifelong uh, Cincinnati Reds fan. Have you ever actually owned a minivan? Because that's one of your big jokes at the show is all the minivans showing up. I have not. Now, I owned a big Chevy van when I first got here. And of course, with kids and uh, my older daughter being an equestrian, we always had, you know, uh, big like Tahoes and Suburbans pulling horse trailers all over the southeast. But no, (laughs) never had a minivan. One of the crowd favorites that you perform uh, every pretty much every night that I've ever seen you. Uh, is a song about sandwiches. And I'm sure that's one question everybody from the state of Ohio wants to know about you is what is your favorite sandwich? Turkey and cranberry sandwich. It's like Thanksgiving between two slices of bread. And, you know, my wife is a, is a gourmet cook. I mean, she can make anything. And she'll ask me, you know, honey, what, what do you want? I said, how about just a nice turkey sandwich, please? You know? Uh, so, yeah, I'm a, I'm a sandwich connoisseur for sure. <laughs> you and me alike, brother. You and me alike. I absolutely <laughs> love them. One of the other things that, that usually comes out every night when you play down there is, you know, you invite the kids to come up and tell you about themselves or families or brothers, sisters, whatever, sing a song with you. You won't allow anybody to ever tell any jokes. What was the joke that ended all the jokes? Well, I, I you know, I'm going to uh, divulge a secret here. There was no original joke, but I decided early on because I was representing my employers that I had to be ultra careful about what I not only what I said and didn't say, but what children 
could say and wouldn't say. So rather than risk having something inappropriate said, you know, some dad setting up their little boy to tell, you know, something that wasn't appropriate, I decided to take that card off the table early on. Now, I lead them into saying funny things, but hopefully it it doesn't cross over into the inappropriate. Yeah, I I remember as a kid when kids actually got up there and told some jokes and there were definitely some oh, yeah. ones that was like, not always wow. my breath. Uh, what's coming next? Or what's the punchline? <laughs> Tell me about, uh, making the movie. Is that the favorite project you've ever worked on? Um, actually we've made a couple of movies. We made a little, uh, straight to video piece. A company out of Nashville wanted to, uh, do something with me. And so we wrote a script about going to camp and I was camp director. Uh, and so we rented a camp up in the mountains of North Carolina the week after they closed down for the summer. And we were there for three or four weeks or whatever. And we, we shot this movie. It's called Camp Tanglefoot. And it's it's really kind of a uh, uh, fish out of water, kids at camp. You know, when you go to camp, you not only bring your duffel bag, but you bring all your your stuff from home, you know, whatever you might be going through. So I particularly in, enjoyed that shoot. Uh, but then when the two guys from L.A. called me about wanting to do a full-length uh, picture down here, we kind of c- came up with the concept of the teenage girl being shipped off to spend the summer with grandpa who she doesn't know or want to be around and um, uh, a coming of age story if you will shot mostly here some in new york city but uh, mostly here with some pretty well-known actors and uh, uh, it reached a great audience and won some awards and uh, uh, i was i was very proud of it how difficult was it to shoot that movie. I've been involved in a lot of, um, productions, um, some not quite as big as probably what that was, but I know there's a lot of challenges that come along with it. We talk a little bit about, uh, actually the production and, and the challenges in shooting that film. Well, people who have described making a movie as like watching paint dry are pretty accurate. Uh, there's a lot of time where you're doing absolutely nothing other than waiting on other people to get their jobs done. So, um, you know, it's quite cumbersome of setting and lights and camera and locations and, and trying to get it all uh, all done correctly. And there are a lot of people involved from costuming and people that are painting and, and uh, you know, catering and and transportation back and forth from hotels and and whatnot so it's it's quite a process but uh it was fun i I loved it how difficult was it to shoot the the part at the liberty oak tree you know when you come down and you're singing and you know that was a multi-night that wasn't like a a one night kind of shoot that was many nights in a row oh yeah we did it over three nights i think because two of the nights it rained it started raining and uh you know, we couldn't we couldn't complete it. So some of the people that were there the first night in the audience weren't there in the second night or the third night. So we had to match up audience shots, uh, you know, to make it look like it was seamless. Um, 
you know, as a video guy, you know, lighting is the key. And the lighting guys, they just labor over getting the lights right. But, yeah, it was, it was fun. And I have people all the time come and tell me, yeah, well, I, we were out there that night till four in the morning and it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Everybody thinks movie making is nine to five and it really is not a nine no. to five type job. So no. Uh, so how you, did that really go till four in the morning? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we were trying not to make a lot of noise at four o'clock in the morning, uh, but we had all the necessary permits and the town was totally behind us and Sea Pines was totally on board with us. So it, it was it was a challenge, but it was fun. Now we talked a little bit about in some of the uh, first two episodes, some of the places that you travel to. Is there one place that you have gone to that you know, other than your favorite Bahamas location, one place that you you've gone to that just amazed you? You absolutely loved. You love to go back to. Well, uh, luckily for me, with the cruise ship world that I've lived in, uh, I've been to all the Caribbean islands. I've been up and down South America, California, Hawaii, Australia, New Zealand, uh, the Mediterranean. I, I think if my wife and I had to pick one thing we would want to do again, um, we love the river cruises in in Europe where you just float along the Rhine uh, River over the course of 10 days or two weeks. And every day you're in a, in a different European village or, or uh, city, small town, whatever. And you go walk, you're right in the middle of town because all the commerce was right there on those rivers. So you walk into town and, and uh, have lunch or dinner and, uh, you know, the cathedrals and the forts and uh, the history, all of that. That would probably be our favorite place to go together. But my favorite place I've ever been, ever, uh, we developed a uh, World War II script uh, for a movie. And I got to go to Normandy a couple of times and work with uh, uh, the guys that uh, uh, oversee that entire place. And as a World War II buff, when I started writing the script, uh, getting into the details of all that Normandy represents. I've never been in a place that was more moving or more meaningful to me personally than walking over that first little knoll, if you've ever been or the people have ever been to Normandy, and then seeing the gravestones laid out in front of you as far as you can see, all perfectly aligned, not one blade of grass out of place. Probably the most beautiful and yet humbling place I've ever been. The French are actually extremely proud. If you go to Normandy, they absolutely love Americans as much as, you know, the French and the Americans, you know, always kind of back and forth and making fun of each other and all that. That's one place I understand if you go there and you're an American, it is just wide open arms. Well, we wrote it into the script. Um, the school children in France, maybe not in Paris, but, you know, out in the in the countryside, when they go to school, they learn World War II songs and they take field trips to Normandy. And while we were there, I saw this 
and that's why we reemphasized it in the script. They will find a veteran in a wheelchair or a family that's visiting a grave, and they make a circle, and they hold hands, and they circle this family or this veteran, and they sing to them these old GI World War II songs as moving as anything I've I've ever seen and I think you know it's it disappointing to think of our education system and and what we teach or don't teach and the emphasis that we place on certain things or not on certain things and to know what happened over there and to have the french teach it and school it and take their children to learn about it and experience it, um, it makes me feel like we're missing the boat somewhat here. Yeah, I'm sure there are a lot of a lot of tears that are shed when those kids go and sing those songs. Things really changed in travel after 9-11. You were sharing me a few stories. Um, tell me about the, the passport issue that you ran into and, and what travel was like after 9-11 for you. Well, I was traveling so much. Every week I was flying somewhere around the world to join a a cruise ship or uh, do a convention show or whatever. And I'd accumulated lots of frequent flyer miles, but also a lot of stamps in my passports. And as you know, passports are fairly thin items. Um, But for the right reasons, you can go to a passport office and they will add 100 pages to your passport. And each page holds four or six stamps of going in and out of countries. Well, I had run through three uh, expanded passports, mostly because of the cruise ships. Every kind of port you can imagine coming and going through Mexico and the Caribbean and, and Europe and wherever. And after 9-11, they really started taking a much harder look at passports and where are you going and why. And I'd, I'd get off a cruise ship in Cartagena, Colombia at 8 o'clock in the morning, go to the airport to fly out. And an immigration guy is looking at my passport because it got stamped on the ship because they come on board and they do the immigration on board. And the guy says to me, well, you're leaving our country. Yes, sir. Well, you don't like our country? Well, I'm flying back to Miami. When would you get here? A couple hours ago. Well, why are you leaving? You don't like our country. It's got nothing to do with that. I'm working. Well, who are you meeting here? I'm not meeting anybody. Well, what's? did you bring anything into the country or you taking anything out? No. And they invariably go through a guitar case and my uh, my... Uh, luggage, uh, you know, it, it just didn't jive with them why somebody would be traveling as extensively of, as I was doing what I was doing. Surely I must be doing something illegal. <laughs> and they tried to get to the bottom of it. So I saw the back rooms of a lot of airports and it, it got very old very quickly. Yeah, I'm sure one of the top places in the world you ever want to be is the back room of some Colombian airport. <laughs> yeah, frightening. <laughs> really frightening. I missed many a flight because they held me over uh, and, and just could not understand how somebody could be doing what I was doing with hundreds, literally hundreds of country stamps in my uh, passports. 
let's come back to the island and talk a little bit about what the future looks like. It's currently 2021. We're coming out of, you know, the worldwide pandemic. What do you see as the future of Hilton Head and Sea Pines? Well, for me personally, uh, we canceled all of my shows last year um, and then most recently canceled all of our springtime shows um, in trying to be extra cautious uh, uh, with everything that everybody's going through right now. But uh, we're still very hopeful about getting back out there this summer with the crowd size restrictions that have been loosened up a bit and the vaccinations that are going on and people are feeling a little more comfortable uh, I'm very, very hopeful that uh, I, I don't want to miss another summer like we missed last year. So I'm, I'm hopeful. Um, last year, Sea Pines and Hilton Head in general had a hugely successful year uh, because all the pent up demand, uh, people just got tired of sitting at home and they wanted to go somewhere. And uh, I think there's a feeling here of safety and like this, uh, a bubble we live in here and we do really. Um, and we haven't had the extraordinary conditions where a lot of people were getting sick or uh, any of that here. So we've been very lucky. So the projections for this spring and summer uh, on Hilton Head are, from what I'm hearing, off the charts. And as far as real estate goes, um, we really haven't seen a surge in real estate uh, like we're seeing right now and have over the last six months, eight months or so, uh, like is going on right now. If, As far as renting, if, if you're thinking about renting a, a villa or a home, and I'll speak for CPINs because that's what I know best, over the next six months, uh, you better get on the phone today because uh, everything is booked solid. And if you're trying to buy real estate, I've been very active in the real estate business over the last 10 years or so. Uh, the demand here is is legendary and pricing is commensurate with the, there's just not a lot of inventory. We're down 70% of the inventory that we had a year ago. We're down 70%. I think right now there's 26 homes for sale in Seapons. Something like wow. that. Some crazy low number. I, I live in a small development and and bought a house uh, uh, last May. And when I bought that house, there were 30 houses for sale there. And right now there are two. That's all. So as I said in one of our earlier uh, talking points, uh, I don't know that we've ever been stronger here, both in visitorship uh, in the real estate side, it's as stable or more stable than it's ever been, and it's on the rise. So uh, I, I think that bodes well for all of us that live and, and visit and work here. In the first episode, we talked a lot about Charles Frazier and some of the things that he did to make Sea Pines and Hilton Head what it was. I've been reading this book, uh, Backwater Frontier, and that chapter in there talks about him preserving a lot of the live oaks and trees down in the Sea Pines area. One of the trees that he made sure got preserved is known as the Liberty Oak. And it's what you play under every summer when they allow you to actually play. Yes. Saving that tree cost Charles Frazier $50,000, which back when that was 
happening and they were building Harbortown was quite a lot of money. What does that tree and that lighthouse mean to you? Well, it's home. I mean, it, 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 it was the beginnings of my career. It's where I've met lots and lots and lots of people, some who have become lifelong friends. And it didn't matter where I went around the world. I always knew that when I came home, that uh, when I showed up under that tree, people showed up to be there with me. And back to the Charles Fraser thing, when they laid out Harbor Town, originally the harbor was going to be much larger and extend further. And Charles um, sat there under the Liberty Oak with a sketch pad, and he said, we're going to redesign this whole thing. We're going to build this wall out around this old oak tree, and we're going to save this tree. Now, $50,000 doesn't sound like a big deal, but when you're trying to build a whole resort and you don't have enough resources to begin with, um, that savings was substantial back then. And people tried to talk him out of it, but he wasn't going to be persuaded to do otherwise. So he, he saved the tree. And if you can pull up old pictures of the tree from back then, it was a pretty scrawny, unhealthy-looking um, oak tree with others in the vicinity that looked bigger and fuller. But he knew that that would be a focal point for people to come. Can you imagine how many pictures have been taken under that tree back toward the lighthouse, weddings that take place? Um, you know, I've done 4,400 shows under that tree. And the connections that people make and the moms and dads who see little Junior uh, walk up there and sing their little song, and it creates memories that stay with people. So uh, it's been the launching pad for my career. It's one of the first things outside of Disney that I've ever done, and it will be the last thing that I ever do. I've given up for the most part traveling around, and uh, whereas I used to be on the road 200 nights a year, I may do 20 uh, outside events now every year, uh, and that gets smaller and smaller. But I want the last song that I ever sing to be sung under that tree, and I don't want to have to wait for them to tell me it's time to go. I'll know when it's time to go. I'll know before they do because they've been so, at Sepon, so supportive of what I do. But when it's, when I feel it, you know, it's like the athlete that stays on too long and they move him to right field or first base or a designated <laughs> hitter and you see Mickey Mantle struggle to run to first base. Yeah, you don't want that. You know, it's been such a great relationship uh, that I've had with the tree and all who have come to visit under the tree, that I, I, I want it to end the same way it, it started. I always tell people, tonight or when I'm under that tree, somebody's going to see me for the first time and somebody's going to see me for the last time. And they both deserve the exact same amount of energy and passion and enthusiasm. Amazing thoughts and, and stories there. And what's really amazing is the vision and the decision-making that happened 40, 50, 60 years ago 
how that has impacted, you know, what happens on the island and in Harbor Town all these years later, um, and all the the amazing stories you're talking about, people having weddings there, and you know how that tree is really kind of be a, a focal point uh, of Harbor Town, you know, along with the, the lighthouse. That tree went through some challenges a few years back. You talk about it in your show yeah. on nights. What what happened to well, it? Well, you know, it got very sick. We've had some uh, major storms and uh, water intrusion and uh, all of that stuff. And, and oak trees are, uh, by their nature, fairly sensitive, even though this is a live oak. Kids say, well, yeah, it's alive. No, it's it's a live oak because it keeps its leaves throughout the year. Um, and uh, one year it, it just started looking really puny and, and losing branches and leaves and, uh, and they sprayed it and did everything they knew how to do to uh, uh, revitalize the tree. And they have a tree guy that's like a tree guru. And he walked out there and he said, uh, I can fix this tree. And somehow, somewhere, he ordered, the number is debatable, but I've, I've heard all sorts of numbers, 100,000 ladybugs from somewhere. Where do you order ladybugs? And they shipped them in, and they took a cherry picker and extended it up and let these 100,000 ladybugs go up into the oak tree. And apparently, it was under attack by some aphid, if you will, and the ladybugs attacked all the bugs that were attacking the tree, and wouldn't you know it, it came back bigger and stronger and more healthy than any time in its 325-year history. One of the other things Charles Frazier did down in Harbortown was he built a playground, and I actually played on that playground as a kid. Now, they have obviously renovated it and put in some new equipment, but it still retains a lot of the the same kind of, I guess, flavor to it for kids, um, you know, built through the tree and, and all that kind of thing. They named that playground after you a few years back. Tell me a little bit about that and what that means to you. Well, it was a complete surprise to me. I, I, I I don't remember the exact year, but it was, you know, a 25th or 30th year or 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 something. And the powers to be at Sea Pines wanted to find some way to uh, memorialize uh, uh, what I was doing with families and kids. And what a what better place than that that playground where if you go there right now, you you see dads pushing kids in swings and, you know, mom's uh, catching the kid that comes off the slide. And unfortunately, in our hectic world, we're all so busy that now sometimes it's uh, the only time parents interact with kids is on vacation. And, uh, you know, that uh, hearing the laughter and the uh, little screams of kids and r- running up and down the stairs and the uh, tree houses and things that are there uh, for them to have named that after me, I think is more about family relationships and the joy that the simple things in life bring to us all. Because what I do on a nightly basis is not rocket science at all. I sing silly little songs and I try to uh, 
interact and connect with children and families on a very, very basic level. There's no flashing lights. There's no smoke. There's no, you know, big event. There's two outside landscape lights up in the tree that shine down on me. This isn't a big deal production, and, and I have purposely tried to keep it as simple uh, in format and for uh, uh, in production values as we possibly can because we've all been to the restaurant where it's a whole new all little restaurant and it's incredibly popular and you have to wait and wait and wait to get in and then they expand it and they put in all this stuff and then it loses its charm it loses its ambiance and it's whatever qualities it had somehow get diminished and I have I've never wanted that to happen I want it to be just as simple and clean and functional as it is so between the lighthouse and the Liberty Oak and and the playground you know that's the trifecta well, who could work in a in a better atmosphere than uh, you know I work seven hours a week. I walk up with a guitar case, and my guy Randy, who's been with me for over 30 years, he's never missed one night in over 30 years. And he interacts with people and uh, all night long. They People stand over and talk to him every night. And, you know, what a great partner he's been to have beside me all these years. And he and I look at each other all the time and say, well, what could be better than this? I mean, we get paid handsomely to do what we do, uh, but the rewards go so far beyond, uh, you know, what I'm I'm being paid to do as a performer. Yeah, if you have a problem, go see Randy. <laughs> go see Randy. He's found more kids and and fixed more skin knees, and uh, you know, he's just he he's a gem. He worked for me out in Colorado, and at the end of one winter out there, I said, Randy, what are, what are you doing uh, this spring and summer? He said, I don't know. I said, Well, you want to come to Hilton Head? He said, Yeah, I guess. So he came here, and he's been with me ever since. And like I say, he's never missed a night. Not one. If I've been there, he's been there. There are nights where it's storming and raining. I have a great picture that I love. I'm sitting on the on the stage with 10 kids, and it's raining to beat the band, and Randy is holding an umbrella over me so that I— Maybe it's their, those kids' last day of vacation. They don't care that it's raining. So if they're going to sit there— why can't Randy and I sit there? So for 20 minutes in the pouring rain, Randy and I interact with these kids. So it's it says a whole lot about loyalty from him to me and and us to our audience and uh, how Sea Pines has uh, supported and taken care of what we do for all these years. Well, it says a lot about you and your dedication to playing for all those hundreds of thousands, if not millions of kids that have come to, to sit on that stage. One of the things those kids do as we wrap up this series with you every night, those kids bring signs and you know, there's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of signs and you go through and you read all those signs because I do. Yeah. They, they, Took the time to actually they make did. them, whether it was like a nice, beautiful thing or some dad gave them a crayon and a pizza box and, you know, they made them on that. Is there 
any one particular sign or a few signs that oh, stand out? I have fun with those signs over, over the years. That... I really have fun with those signs. One of them, uh, <laughs> a few summers ago, kid hold up a sign that says, "My grandma thinks you're hot." <laughs> <laughs> but maybe my favorite sign of all time, a kid held up a sign. It says, and I read them out loud. It says, my mom sang with you in 1985. Please pick me while you're still alive. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And of course, you know, I have fun with the signs on the back of the sign. You know, it could be a, a beer uh, box, you know, and I'll always say, yeah, some dad helped with this sign, <laughs> you know, <laughs> dad, we need to make a sign. Well, here, let me drink the last six of these. You can have this. <laughs> <laughs> Greg, this has been just a wonderful time to, to spend with you uh, over this three part series. I know you have just a gazillion more stories and, and maybe at some point, uh, we'll be able to to sit down again and, and share some more of those. Thank you so much for taking the time to come do this. Well, thanks. You introduced me as a somewhat of a legend. You know, I, I, that makes me cringe a bit. I, I appreciate the sentiment. But if I have a legacy at all, uh, the legacy is those thousand or so families that have come and spent a week here in the Hilton Head Hero House. If if as Paul Azinger told me, you know, I want to be missed. If um, if someday when this my run here is over and uh, those families coming to the house and those kids coming under the tree, if I'm missed, then uh, that's a pretty good legacy. I'll keep that. Amen. Greg, thank you. My pleasure. Greg has some great family-friendly movies, CDs, and even a couple of books available on his website, gregrussell.com. That's with two Gs. I encourage you to check them out. As we discussed in part two of this series, the Hilton Head Heroes Foundation is a nonprofit that brings children with various illnesses who are true heroes and their entire family to Hilton Head Island for an all-expenses-paid week-long stay in Sea Pines. It is a true passion for Greg and Lindy Russell and the whole team at the foundation. These kids and their families are going through just heart-wrenching times, and the Hilton Head Heroes Foundation gives these hurting families a time of healing and wholeness in a very special place. To find out more about the Hilton Head Heroes Foundation's mission, visit hhheroes.com and please help them help these families with a much-needed respite. We have an entire episode about the Hilton Head Heroes Foundation the house, and some stories about the families that have had the opportunity to visit. So check that out as well. With that, we send you down 278 to Lighthouse Road with the song that Greg always starts his Harbor Town show with. Until next time, here is I Love This Harbor. It's a wonderful night in Harbor Town A beautiful night to sing All the children gather round Ready to do their thing The sun is setting over my shoulder And night is on her way Every year I look a little bit older But I still can't honestly
So oh. 